The Kansas City Speedway was a one and a quarter mile wood board racetrack built south of Kansas City, Missouri in the 1920s. Millions of feet of two by fours bolted together creating an arena of speed. The Kansas City Public Library 674 word single web page sharing the story of the track calls it an obscure footnote in Kansas City's history. On today's episode of Sector 2, I'm going to share just a glimpse into the story of this track, a few of its triumphs, tragedies, and eventually its demise. This track had the potential to be one of the best. The Speedway more than sold out its 50,000 seat grandstand for its first race in 1922. For reference, the Indianapolis Star reported that year's Indy 500 had a record-setting crowd of 135,000. The first Daytona 500 didn't even break the 50,000 mark. This race in Kansas City was a big deal. John A. Butler was president of the Kansas City Speedway Association and led the effort to bring the track and motor racing to Kansas City. J.B. Reynolds served underneath him as vice president. In the 1920s, these mega racetracks were made of wood. Of course, many racetracks were just dirt, or you might know about a certain track in Indianapolis that was made out of bricks. There's a deep history of these woodboard tracks to read and learn about. At the time of the Kansas City Speedway's opening, there were just about 20 in the country, and Kansas City's was widely reported as having the potential to be the best. That's largely due to the engineering duo that led the way. Jack Prince was in charge of engineering the project. He led the construction of many woodboard tracks across the United States and is credited with creating the concept. Along with Kansas City and other tracks, he led the project to create the first woodboard track for race cars in Los Angeles. He was also a world-renowned bicyclist, which sounds like a random fact to include, but that's where the inspiration for the woodboard track came from. Woodboard tracks for bicycle racing. Prince was partnered with Art Pillsbury. Pillsbury worked with Prince on the track in Los Angeles and was actually one of the major shareholders of the facility there. While Prince focused on the Kansas City racetrack itself, Pillsbury focused on engineering the grandstands and roadways for car and foot traffic at the facility. This included over 20,000 parking spaces and multiple concrete tunnels providing infield access to cars and pedestrians. The Great Railroad Strike of 1922 made some logistics of gathering wood and other materials difficult, but ultimately the track was built in just three months. Obviously not the fancy type of facility you would see today, but impressive nonetheless. The massive grandstand banking and safety builds make it even more impressive. 500 men worked together to build the track and pull everything together. According to a publication from the Speedway, they had built one of the first grandstands almost entirely of steel, ensuring, quote, safety against fire or collapse for its patrons. The grandstands were extremely expensive, but determined to be worth the cost for the added safety and comfort of spectators. The top level of seats were more than 80 feet in the air. Along with the structural safety, the Speedway also touted its fire and safety dispatch procedures to protect both fans in the stands and competitors on the track. Since the track was made out of boards, this allowed for some pretty extreme banking, and with the banking comes speed. The 19 degrees of banking at Formula One Zandvoort racetrack is intimidating their engineers. NASCAR fans know all about the dangers and speed at the Daytona and Talladega Super Speedways, 31 and 33 degrees at those tracks. The Kansas City Speedway had 40 degrees of banking. 
The track was an oval. The layout kind of reminds me of the original Atlanta Motor Speedway layout, but was straightaway slightly curved, kind of like Chicagoland's backstretch. On the front page of the 25 cent program you can read on the Kansas City Museum's website, the Kansas City Speedway Association promotes the quote, first international 300 mile speed classic for the grand opening of the Kansas City Speedway. For the weeks leading up to the race, the cars for the first event were on display at Union Station in Kansas City. Everyone in town got a chance to see the cars before they were running at a blistering 100 miles an hour around the oval. Some more pre-race buildup occurred when renowned owner-driver Cliff Durant was going to fly in on his own plane from California for the race. Durant was the son of the founder of the Durant Motors Corporation. A crowd of fans and competitors went out to the airfield to anticipate the arrival, but Cliff's plane crashed out in Leavenworth, Kansas. Everyone survived the crash, but, um, yeah, <laughs> Cliff would eventually not start the race. On the inside cover of the program, there's an ad for the Southern Pine Association, boasting that, quote, in order to withstand the strain of the terrific pounding of racing motor cars, the board track must be smooth, strong, durable, and absolutely safe, and continues, quote, the material must also resist the weather effectively. The officials of the Speedway chose Southern Pine, which, as we and track operators would soon find out, the pine they selected was not durable enough and did not resist the weathering of Kansas City's seasonal climate effectively. The first event was to be run under the jurisdiction of the American Automobile Association Contest Board. This is the same group that sanctioned the Indy 500 for decades and set the building blocks for modern IndyCar. The cars for the races at the Kansas City Speedway were, of course, open wheel. The mostly eight-cylinder machines were extremely dangerous. It was often better to fly out of your car in the event of a crash than to be trapped inside of it. An added element to this type of racing you don't see today is the ride-along mechanic. The Indianapolis Star calls the job the, quote, most dangerous and least glorified job in all of auto racing history. This person was at the mercy of the driver and essentially served as the lead communicator and engineer for the race. You might be picturing a situation like Chad Knauss chilling in a passenger seat next to Jimmy Johnson and his NASCAR machine. It was not that simple. The two were crammed in the cockpit together, as close as three people would be in the back seat of a compact car that you ordered from Uber. The mechanic's jobs ranged from monitoring gauges, communicating with the pits via hand signals, to warning the drivers of cars approaching from behind. Riding mechanics were actually a requirement in the Indy 500 from 1930 to 1937. However, no winner used a ride-along mechanic before then, and not a single competitor used one once they became optional again. The great innovation of a rear-view mirror essentially filled their role. Qualifying procedures for the event were as follows. The fastest 18 entries would be allowed to race. If less than 18 cars entered, you still had to make a minimum lap speed of 100 miles an hour over four laps. The race program also mentions a, quote, rigid physical examination for the competing drivers to, quote, give evidence of their ability to drive 300 miles at the terrific speeds the race will develop. Qualifying times were measured with a highly advanced and rare scoring and timing device. As cars passed across the line, an electrical current would break, causing a typewriter-like machine to make marks on a roll of paper. It could record the precise lap times of cars, given they weren't so close to each other that the marks could still be distinguished. 
brakes, steering components, axles, and gasoline were all inspected and had replacement procedures to ensure driver safety. The race program tells fans to look for starter Fred Wagner and his colored flags, which, if you are going to have a car race, Fred was the man you wanted waving the flags. He'd served as the starter for plenty of Indy 500s. The program informs fans that, quote, the red flag is the start and means a clear course. Yes, it says this. Yellow is a warning to slow down, white stop for consultation, blue accident on the track, green starting last lap, and then the greatest flag of all, the checkered flag spelling victory. So I'll organize this for you. Their green flag equivalent was red. Instead of a black flag, they would use a white flag, which I guess makes sense, surrender to the pits of sorts. And I guess blue was the equivalent to a current day red flag. And instead of Credit One Bank giving you the white flag, they'd give you the green. The initial race program also provides a tutorial on how to read the scoreboard, understanding that each number correlated to a driver and the number of laps they've run. Recommending that spectators, quote, memorize the card numbers and drivers so that when the race starts, you will recognize that a certain number means Murphy, Milton, Elliott, or some other favorite. By memorizing the names of drivers with car numbers, the spectator can give his entire attention to the excitement of the race. The original first race date was Saturday, September 16th, 1922, but the race was pushed back a day because of rain. 18 cars entered the first race, only 16 met the minimum speed to qualify, and just 15 would take the green, or the red. The one car that did not start the race after qualifying was W.W. Brown. He and Riley Brett, who was the first car to DNF once the race started, had both built their cars at shops in downtown Kansas City. The cars were owned by Kansas City and George L. Wade. He also owned the car that Pete DePaolo drove. DePaolo was relatively fresh to his driving career. According to Racing Reference, this was just his seventh start in what would be nearly a decade-long driving career. He'd served as a ride-along mechanic for legendary driver Ralph De Palma for quite some time and then launched his own career in this 1922 season. Pete DePolo's career would peak with an Indy 500 win in 1925. I'm going to share more about Pete and his impact on this race in just a minute. Around lap 47 of the race, the 35 car of that year's Indy 500 winner Jimmy Murphy lost a wheel, causing a crash with Joe Thomas. Thomas suffered a broken leg in the incident, and this was just Murphy's second DNF in his 16th race of the season. Frank Elliott, a native of nearby Lathrop, Missouri, took the lead on lap 111, exciting the crowd of local fans. On lap 115 of 240, Roscoe Sarles, a racer from California, died in the race's most serious crash. A steering component on his car broke, sending his car into Pete Paolo's machine. Sarles was killed in the crash. His mechanic pickup and Pete Paolo were both seriously injured. According to the AP report of the crash, Sarles' car flew over the turn three and four guardrail and off the 45 degree banking down more than 25 feet to the ground below where he was trapped underneath the machine. Roscoe Sarles had been pretty active and successful in the racing scene. He had entered nearly 50 AAA races since 1917, winning six of them, according to Racing Reference. He finished second and led a lap in the 1921 Indy 500. Even before he was entering AAA races, he was winning on dirt tracks in the Midwest. In the Kansas City race program, his bio reads, quote, Sarles has had more spectacular spills than any of the active drivers, yet despite his many mishaps, has always escaped without serious injury. Roscoe did not have that same luck in Kansas City. 
Between the early Murphy-Thomas crash, the fatal Sarles crash, and a few others listed in the report, it was hard to understand exactly how many drivers and mechanics were injured. The statement seemed to suggest that three mechanics suffered skull fractures during this first race, and that at least four drivers were injured outside of these two major crashes. As dangerous as this race was, Roscoe Sarles' death was the only fatality to occur at the Kansas City Speedway. Tommy Milton, who would go on to become the first two-time Indy 500 winner, would win this first race. His number 8 machine led more than half of the race, and with the win, claimed the $10,000 prize. His average speed of 107 miles per hour was faster than Jimmy Murphy's Indy 500 winning 94 miles per hour from earlier that year, which makes sense when you consider the length of the race and added banking at the Kansas City track. Harry Hartz claimed P2 just 20 seconds behind Milton. Only six of the 15 starters were able to complete every lap. The track only held four races from 1922 to 1924. Eddie Hearn, Harlan Flanger, and Jimmy Murphy would win the other three races. Oh, by the way, if you don't like NASCAR's stage racing gimmick, get a load of this. A quote from a Chillicothe, Missouri newspaper promoting the 1924 race. Quote, in addition to the $25,000 purse, it is announced there will be lap prizes of $100 for every 10 laps, which will mean bursts of speed all through the race. So the race was a bunch of 10 lap mini stages giving out uh, money to the driver leading at that point. Kansas City's harsh winters and hot summers didn't help the untreated wood boards last long. In what would become the track's final race on July 4th, 1924, the event had to be stopped after 150 of the scheduled 250 miles because some of the boards had been rotting and were coming apart. Holes were apparent all over the track. 2010 Daytona 500-esque, I guess you could say. The attendance for this race, the July 4th weekend, 1924, was about to 20,000, according to the Kansas City Star. Jimmy Murphy, who won this race, also won the AAA race the week before in Pennsylvania. He would additionally win the next race on the schedule, giving him a three-race winning streak. But he would die in a crash in the following race, in Syracuse. So here's Jimmy Murphy's 1924 season. It started with a 7th place finish, then a podium finish in the Indy 500 in which he started on the pole, three straight wins, and then he died in a crash. Absolutely bonkers. The track was so expensive to build, and with only four races of revenue, there was no money left for owners to make repairs, and the track had to close for good. There were signs heading into that race weekend that the track's days were numbered. Even before this final race, the track had entered bankruptcy procedures. For such an expensive build, and with little to no revenue to provide regular maintenance on the weathered boards, it was, uh, just short of a failure. If the track would have lasted, Kansas City might have been one of, if not the American racing hub. Of course, Indianapolis would go on to become the racetrack in the United States. More than seven decades after the wood track closed in Kansas City, the International Speedway Corporation officially made the announcement on August 6th, 1997, that they were going to build a new track in Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas Speedway has now played host to many iconic racing moments. Nat Kenseth being spun by Joey Logano, Ricky Hendrick's only NASCAR Truck Series win, Carl Edwards' attempted dive bomb on Jimmy Johnson, and some of IndyCar's closest finishes. I'll end this episode with a poem from the first race program by Indianapolis journalist William Herschel. It's called The Feel of the Wheel. There's a feel to the bit of a thoroughbred in that last long leap to win by head. There's a feel to the wind as the airman flies 
through the seas of cloud to the open skies. But never a feel has there been thus far like the feel of the wheel of a racing car. It's there that the man in a man finds test, for the heart must steal in the human breast. The feel of the wheel as the motor pounds, the miles behind it in dizzying rounds, puts man in a man, for it takes an ace in the gripping grind of speed's hard pace. He hears the cheers of the crowded stands, he hears the blare of the countless bands, but it all dies out as the starter's gun hurls men in a race to be run and won. He grips his wheel and he hears it say, Hold steady, old boy, and we'll win today. Lap, lap, lap. There's fire in the wheel, fire in the tires, and fire in the steel. A tumult of voices floods his ear. The boys in his own pit start to cheer. Then it comes the feel, not other there are, like the feel of the wheel of a victor's car. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sector 2. You can find me on Twitter at underscore jtod14 underscore. If you want some visuals to go along with this podcast, I'm making a YouTube version. You can find a link to that on my Twitter.